again. It's Good Friday, and what this means is that we're taking this time to commemorate and celebrate the sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus. But have you ever considered the facts concerning the excruciating pain that Christ Jesus endured there on the cross nearly 2,000 years ago? Have you ever pondered the pain that he endured as he bore our sins upon that tree? If so, then it's my hope that this Good Friday study will help you to remember how much the Lord Jesus loves us, because that's what the cross is all about, the Lord's love for us. Now, if this is the first time that you've considered the facts surrounding the sacrifice of our Savior, then it's my prayer that this study tonight will help you to realize why we call this holy day Good Friday. With this as the focus, I want to take a moment to consider the emotional suffering that Christ Jesus experienced on the night of his arrest. And and if you would, look with me here on the screens. Here we find Luke, the physician, describing the emotional agony of Jesus Christ. It's here in Luke chapter 22. Here the Lord Jesus prays, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now here in this account, we find Luke describing the way in which our Savior was sweating so much that uh, uh, it was kind of like me when I go mountain biking. It's just so much sweat. So much sweat. It was like great drops of blood. Some scholars even speculate that the Lord Jesus was actually suffering from a a rare medical condition known as hematidrosis. Just to be clear, hematidrosis is a medical condition by which the anguish of extreme emotional stress causes the capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands to rupture, resulting in bloody sweat. Yeah, some believe that he was so completely stressed out, knowing what he was about to endure on the cross, that he started in, uh, his body started going into hematidrosis. With that being the case, Christ Jesus was clearly suffering from extreme emotional stress as he was preparing for the cross. And the next thing that Jesus endured on the day he was killed, well, it was the scourging that John describes in his gospel account. If you would look with me here, there on the screens at John chapter 18, we'll begin reading at verse 39. Here we find Pilate telling the Jews, you have a custom that I should release someone to, uh, to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to uh, release to you the king of the Jews? But they cried out again saying, not this this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe. And then they said, hail king of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Now uh, here in these verses, we, we find John telling us that Jesus was scourged prior to being crucified. It'll help us to understand that this scourging was possibly the worst kind of flogging administered by any ancient court. And and while this scourging wasn't designed to result in death, it was brutal enough to be fatal in many cases. But the Roman soldiers would beat their prisoner within an inch of their life. 
The victim of a Roman scourging was bound to a post and stripped of their clothing and then beaten with a whip, which was uh, made with strands uh, that were uh, designed to lacerate the skin uh, of the accused. The strands of leather would be, uh, you know, uh, would, would uh, encompass, uh, you know, different uh, sharp pieces of, of rock or metal. One church historian, his name is Eusebius, he recounts with vivid, horrible detail one scene of scourging in this way, and I quote, for they say that the bystanders were struck with amazement when they saw them lacerated with scourges, even to the innermost veins and arteries, so that the hidden inward parts of the body, both their bowels and their members were exposed to view. Brutal, brutal beating. And this is what happened to Jesus Christ on the day he was killed. He not only was suffering possibly from this medical condition where he was bleeding from his sweat glands, but then he was beaten with this scourge within an inch of his life. Then after being scourged with a Roman whip, Jesus was then nailed to a Roman cross. And with this in mind, look with me here at John chapter 19. We'll begin reading at verse 14. Here John writes, now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha, where they crucified him. And two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the center. Here in these verses, John tells us that Jesus was crucified. And what this means is that the Roman soldiers hammered iron spikes into his wrists between the radius bone and the carpal bones. And and the nail probably crushed and severed the large median nerve, resulting in partial paralysis, as well as excruciating bolts of fiery pain traveling up both arms. And Jesus' feet were also fixed to the front of the cross by means of another iron spike, which was driven through the first or second intermetatarsal space, which is basically located there in the center of the foot. And much like the median nerve in the wrists, the spike caused damage to the peroneal nerve, thereby resulting in excruciating bolts of fiery pain in both of his legs. And since the nails missed all of the major arteries in both the wrists and the feet, crucifixion was relatively bloodless. True, the scourging had opened up his back, but the nails in his wrists and and feet drew very little blood. It's interesting to note that the victim of crucifixion would typically die from asphyxiation. As a matter of fact, the awkward position of the person's body upon the cross would interfere with their ability to exhale. And so every time they breathed out, they would have to push up from all three nails. They would have to raise their body weight just to exhale and then get another breath. 
The weight of the body pulling down on the outstretched arms and shoulders would then tend to fix the muscles between the ribs in a state of inhalation, thereby hindering their ability to exhale. And as a result, the victim of crucifixion would oftentimes end up dying just from an inability to breathe. In the event that a crucified person continued to hang there, so to speak, the Roman soldiers would then eventually break their legs when it was time to go home and have dinner. In this way, they would hasten the death of the individual by asphyxiation. With that, we should consider what John says next here in John chapter 19. John tells us here that they didn't need to break the legs of the Lord because he was already dead. Look with me here at John 19 verse 29. Here John writes, now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath for the Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified And his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. And here in these verses, John tells us that by the time the soldiers came to break the legs of Jesus, they discovered that he was already dead. And we know that Jesus gave up his own spirit. But in order to prove that he was dead, this soldier decided to take his spear and he stabbed the side of Jesus into his heart. Now, it was customary for one of the Roman guards to to pierce the body with a sword or, or with a lance. And according to tradition, this would have been a spear wound to the heart right through the side of the chest. John also tells us that this spear wound resulted in blood and water pouring out immediately. You might not know this, but there's a sac surrounding the heart, which contains a watery fluid. Therefore, when John mentions the blood and the water pouring out, he was actually presenting us with conclusive evidence that Jesus was dead. As we examine the forensic facts that John presents here in the gospel account, it's easy for us to see that Jesus was brutally beaten by a Roman guard. He was crucified upon a Roman cross, and he was determined to be dead by a Roman soldier who pierced his heart with a spear. And as we examine the, uh, the, the evidence of Jesus' death, it's important for us to, to ask here, uh, was the apostle John a credible eyewitness? We're reading John's eyewitness testimony, but was he an honest man? Was he a trustworthy man? Can we believe his report? Can we trust him that when he tells us that his testimony is true? With this question in mind, I want to take some time to consider the credibility of John's account. And with this as the focus, I should first take a moment to point out that, you know, a person's credibility is typically based on two key questions. The first question is based on the individual's trustworthiness. 
And so we must ask, was John a trustworthy eyewitness who was, you know, attempting to accurately report the things that he saw, or was he twisting information because he had his own agenda? We want to know if his report is verifiable and confirmed by other sources. Uh, uh, And if not, you know, is he the only witness? Not only should we consider John's trustworthiness, but we should also ask the second question about his level of, uh, of expertise. In other words, we want to know if John had special knowledge about the events that he was reporting on. If John is shown to be a trustworthy eyewitness who had special knowledge about the information that he was reporting, then we can trust that he was a credible source of information. And and in order to to determine John's credibility, I should first point out that when we cross-examine John's testimony with the rest of the Bible writers from the first century, uh, we quickly discover that Matthew, Mark, Luke, Peter, and Paul, they were all in agreement with John's account. And so as you probably already guessed, the believers who pen the New Testament, they confirm John's trustworthiness. And they they do this by presenting us with corroborating accounts. But now a person could argue that, well, all these guys were in on the same lie. They had the same agenda. They were all cooking up this story around the campfire. And so just because other Bible writers confirm John's account doesn't prove that John was trustworthy. With that being the case, knowing that this is a concern for many, then we should consider a few extra biblical sources. For example, let's consider the writings of a Jewish historian from the late first century whose name was Flavius Josephus. Josephus wrote in in his antiquities, and I quote him, now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. Now, as we consider the testimony of this late first century historian, you know, Josephus here, he's informing us about this historical individual named Jesus who was condemned to the cross by a man named Pilate. And this is exactly what John told us in his biblical account. We even see here in, in Josephus' antiquities here that he appeared to them alive the third day. Now, I don't know if Josephus believed that or if he's just telling us what, you know, the disciples of Christ were saying. But what we do know is that in the late first century, this Jewish historian provides us with extra biblical proof that the Christians at least believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ occurring on the third day. And so again, we have an extra biblical source confirming the credibility of John's testimony. And listen, not only does Josephus mention Jesus in his historical record, but there's also an ancient Jewish account found in the Talmud, which also mentions the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, I want to consider the Talmudic passage known as Sanhedrin 43a, which states this, and I quote, On Passover Eve, they hanged Jesus of Nazareth. He practiced sorcery, incited and led Israel astray. And then it goes on, was Jesus of Nazareth deserving of such uh, a search for an an argument in his favor? He was an entitled. 
enticer and the Torah says, you shall not spare, nor shall you conceal him. Now here in this ancient Jewish work, uh, we, we learn that there's this individual named Jesus. He was from Nazareth and he was hanged, or in other words, that's uh, another way of saying crucified. He was crucified for the crimes of sorcery and heresy. You know, the, the gospel writers tell us that's what they were accusing Jesus of. Working miracles by the power of Beelzebub, that's what they accused him of. And that's what they said here in the Talmud, that he was guilty of sorcery and heresy. So they hanged him when? On the eve of Passover. From this we can see then that the religious leaders of Israel who weren't trying to support Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, they provide us with the same basic testimony. And they lend credibility to John's account about the crucifixion of Christ Jesus. As we consider these extra biblical sources, there should be no doubt in our minds then that the biblical accounts that provide us with the facts about Good Friday, they're trustworthy accounts created by those who are eyewitnesses of these events. And the reason for why the testimony of John is so important, it's due to the fact that he was the final apostle who, who, who was left, he was the only apostle physically present there at the cross at the time when Jesus died. Now, there were other disciples there, uh, the, namely the, the ladies who, you know, had the uh, intestinal fortitude to remain at the side of Jesus Christ while all the other men went, ran and hid. But John, John remained. And he was physically present there at the, at the cross at the time when Jesus died. And with that being the case, John is the expert witness who can provide us with all the gory details. He's not only trustworthy, being confirmed by extra biblical sources, but he's the expert eyewitness, being the one who was physically there watching Jesus as he hung there on the cross. As a matter of fact, look with me here at John chapter 19, it's verse 25, where John writes, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Here in these verses, we find John referring to himself as the the disciple whom Jesus loved. And and Jesus, as he hung there on the cross, he was simply asking John to take care of his mother, Mary. He's effectively saying, she's your mom now, take care of her. And so that's when John started praying to Mary. No, I'm joking, That's that's not what happened at all. John began to take care of Mary at that point in time. But listen, he he wasn't a specially trained criminal forensics expert, and yet John was the expert witness in the fact that he was present. He's trustworthy, and he was there to see and witness the crucifixion of Christ Jesus. And that's what he reports to us in his gospel account. He had also walked with the Lord Jesus Christ for three years and heard 
Jesus teaching about all of these things before they happened. The Lord taught John and the rest of the disciples about the way in which he would be betrayed by the chief priests and the scribes, that, that they would condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to, to be mocked and scourged and then crucified. John knew all of these things. He had been taught all of these things. And so he was an expert witness in the, just in the sense that he had been trained for three years to realize what all of these things were. John had received special instruction from Jesus about his crucifixion. And not only that, but the Lord also promised to send the Holy Spirit who would then bring to remembrance all the things that Jesus taught them. Therefore, John, in fact, was an expert eyewitness by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not only that, but it's also important to point out that John confirmed the accounts, or I should say that John, his account was confirmed by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and the rest of the New Testament writers. Therefore, as we consider all of these biblical facts about a Good Friday, as we consider all the details that we find in the scriptures about the day that Jesus died there on the cross, there should be no doubt in our minds then that the Lord Jesus, he did in fact die on that old rugged cross. Just as John has revealed. And with that being the case, we should take a moment to ask, well, then who killed him? You know, who, who killed the, the Lord Jesus Christ? Who crucified Christ Jesus by nailing him to the cross? And, and while you think that might be a simple answer, I want to consider the facts that we find in the Bible. With this as the focus, let's take another look at the suspect list here. If you would look with me again at John chapter 19, it's in verse 14. John writes, it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Then he, that is Pilate, delivered him, that is Jesus, to be crucified so they that's the Roman soldiers, took Jesus and led him away. John here presents us with a list of suspects, beginning with the Roman governor named Pilate. And while it's true that this Roman governor delivered Jesus to be crucified, I don't know that we can lay all of the blame just at the feet of Pontius Pilate. The reason I say this was due to the fact that the soldiers were the ones who actually led Jesus away. The soldiers were the ones who scourged him. The soldiers were the one who literally crucified him. And yet they were just following the orders of Pilate, who himself had given in to the pressure of the Jewish leaders who explicitly called for the crucifixion of Christ Jesus. And so clearly this was a crime that was committed by the jealous Jews who, who uh, you know, uh, were asking the unrighteous Ru uh, Romans to go and carry this whole thing out. So the suspect list is already pretty long. We've got the Jewish leaders, the Roman governor, and the Roman soldiers. At the same time, the, the suspect list is actually much longer than this. As a matter of fact, it's in Isaiah chapter 53. Here we learn uh, that the Messiah has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off. There it is, that, that death penalty. He was cut off from the land of the living. For what? For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. According to the prophet Isaiah, the Messiah would suffer the death penalty on the day that he was cut off from the land of the living. And and listen, not because of any crime he committed. He wasn't being crucified for his own crimes, but rather for the transgressions of Isaiah's people. That's what Isaiah says. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. Now remember... Isaiah was an Israeli. And with that being the case, there should be no doubt in our minds then that God the Father sent his only begotten son to offer himself as a sacrifice for the sins of Israel. Therefore, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to suggest that the nation of Israel can be included on the list of suspects. Why did Jesus die on the cross? To die for the sins of Israel. At the same time, it's also important for us to remember that Jesus actually died for the sins of everyone that trusts in him. Let's consider how Paul put it in Galatians chapter 3. It's there where he declares Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. In other words, when Christ Jesus died on the cross, he was setting the sin debt, or he was, I should say, settling the sin debt of those who trust in him. Or to put it in the words of the apostle Peter, Jesus bore our sins in his own body on the tree so that we, having died to sins, might be able to live for righteousness as we walk in the newness of life. And so we see then that God the Father He cursed his only begotten son so that those who trust in him can be set free from the curse. With that being the case, we can include every Christian then on the suspect list. If you're a born-again believer, Jesus died on that cross because of your sins. So in a sense, we killed Christ. What you might not realize, though, is that the suspect list is even longer. As a matter of fact, it's important for us to realize that the Lord Jesus was actually offering himself as a sacrifice for the sins of every sinner. This is precisely the point that the Apostle John presents in his first epistle. It's 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. There we learn that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the whole world. The whole world. That word propitiation, it's not a word we commonly use. It'll help us to understand that John was basically telling us here that Jesus presented himself as the sacrifice by which our sins are atoned or or paid for. More simply put, Jesus took the punishment that we deserve so that we could escape the righteous wrath of God. And what this means then is that every sinner can add their name to the suspect list because according to John, he's not only the propitiation for our sins, church, but also for the sins of the whole world, everyone. Jesus died on the cross 
for the sins of the whole world. We all belong to the suspect list when it comes to the question, who killed Jesus? He died for our sins, therefore, in a sense, we're guilty of his death. Jesus had to die on the cross in order to provide salvation for sinners and knowing that we would be eternally lost without the cross. God the Father decided to send his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, you know, him who knew no sin, to bear our sins for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. In this way, every sinner is responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. And and since we're all sinners, well then... We're all just as guilty as the jealous Jews who called for his crucifixion or the unrighteous Romans who physically crucified Jesus Christ. And as we consider how all of our names are rightly found on the list of criminal suspects, I just want to remind you of something that Jesus prayed for as he was being crucified and as he, as he hung there. Uh, and, and I want to consider what he says here in Luke chapter 23. It's verse 33, where Luke writes that when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them where they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. As Jesus was being crucified, he asked the Father to forgive those who were guilty of crucifying him. And while it's true that he was praying specifically for those Roman soldiers who were nailing him to the cross, I believe that he was also praying for everyone, everyone who's guilty of the sins that demanded our Savior's substitutionary sacrifice. This, of course, includes every Jew, every Gentile, every sinner who has ever done anything deserving of the Lord's righteous wrath. Knowing that we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, well, this is all of us, every single one of us. With that being the case, listen, Jesus was not only praying for the forgiveness of those who were crucifying him, but he was also praying for all of us and not only praying, but he was providing us with the possibility of forgiveness by receiving the punishment that we all deserve. And knowing that Jesus has offered himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, we all now have the same opportunity to receive the free gift of grace by which sinners are forgiven. You see, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, but that's only beneficial to those who trust in him. Forgiveness is available to every single sinner, but it's only received by those who trust in Jesus Christ. And with that, I must insist that the choice is ours to make. The choice being, you want to pay for your own sins? Or do you want to receive the forgiveness that Jesus purchased with his blood? To further explain what I mean, let's look here again at Luke chapter 23. I want to direct your attention to verse 39. Here Luke tells us that one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, For we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. 
Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now here in these verses, Luke tells us about these two thieves who ended up being crucified on either side of Jesus Christ. And while neither of these men personally call, you know, called for the death of Jesus Christ, neither of these men were the ones yelling, crucify him. And yet neither of them, you know, uh, please understand, neither of them hammered the nails in, into the flesh of Jesus Christ. And yet what we do know for certain is that both of these men were sinners. And therefore Jesus was actually dying for both of these men. These sinners, uh, much like ourselves, were indirectly guilty of Jesus' death. And not only that, but we also know that both of these men, they, they present us with two different paths, or two different options, options that are available to every single person. In order to explain what I mean, let me spell it out in this way. Option number one is the example of the first thief. The first thief rejected the free gift of forgiveness and denied Jesus despite the fact that Jesus was paying for that thief's, that thief's sins with his own blood. And so he presents us with option number one. Mock Jesus, reject him. Reject the free gift of grace that Jesus purchased with his own blood. Then there's option number two, which is exemplified by the second thief. You see, the second thief happily received the free gift of forgiveness by faith in Jesus Christ. Option number two, well, this is, you know, the example uh, that we find in this second thief who says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He submits to Christ as Lord. He submits to Christ as king. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And in this way, we see him responding in faith to the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You might not know this, but every single one of us here tonight is following one of these two men. You're either following the first thief rejecting Jesus Christ, or you're following the second thief, trusting in Jesus Christ. It's possible that you've been following the footsteps of the thief who rejected the free gift of grace, and if so, well, then I encourage you to take a page from the life of the second thief who placed his faith in Jesus Christ. Place your faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ if you haven't already. Place your faith in the finished work. That Jesus accomplished there on the cross as he declared, it is finished. Account paid in full. If you've been following the example of that first thief and you've been rejecting Jesus Christ, then you are still in your sins. And on that path, you will eventually stand before a holy God who has a record of every sin you've ever committed. And he will open up the books of those records and 
pass a judgment for every single sin that you thought you got away with. That day of judgment's coming. And those who follow in the footsteps of thief number one will dread the day when they discover that there is everlasting hell to pay for all of our sins. But those who will follow thief number two and trust in Jesus Christ, well, Jesus received the punishment that we deserve. The account is paid in full. I stand before you right now completely forgiven for every sin, not because I'm a great guy, but because Jesus is a great God and he's a great savior. And he took the punishment that I deserve for every single sin so that my slate could be wiped clean. Place your faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and as you do, you'll discover why we call this Good Friday. Let's pray.